0: Tonight we're gonna do something interesting. I'm gonna ask you to do an evaluation of your life. And we're gonna do it in terms of O and D. So anyway, this is your evaluation. It's your evaluation of your offensive game and your defensive game. How much offense do you play in your life? And how much defense do you play in your life? Have you ever thought in terms of your life as far as offense and defense? And so we're going to look at your life as a whole. We're going to look at your day-to-day. Because sometimes you're evaluating your whole life, but I'm going to ask you, did you play any defense today or did you play any offense today? And I'm also wanting to look at it in the area of spiritual warfare. So your life, your day in battle Let's see how much spiritual warfare and how much you played the offensive game and the defensive game. Well, it started for us this week of someone being over at our coffee house, and they're in tears, and they're crying. They basically were saying, I don't want to be where I'm at. I'm, just, I'm not happy with where I'm at. I'm stuck, and I just need to be in a different place. Can you all help me? Well, you know what happens at that point. What's she ready for? At the point that someone's in tears, they want help. It's to the whiteboard. (laughs) We go to the whiteboard. And so we did an evaluation with this person. We had led her to the Lord years ago. Praise the Lord, she's come a long way. She's not where she was, but she also knows she's not where she needs to be. Have you ever been there? You're definitely not where you were, but you're not happy where you're at right now. Anyway, we said, let's do an evaluation. And it's funny, we won't know what we're going to say, but you just asked the Holy Spirit, will you speak through me? Will you just talk through me? And the first thing we saw was that she was headed for death. Have you ever noticed this is a culture of death? She was in one of those things that, those type groups that has a lot of anger in it. And they're all about death. That's all they think about. They're consumed with it. And so we said, hey, guess what's happened to you? You're no longer in that culture of death anymore. You've gone up a notch. You're actually a survivor. And that's a good thing. I mean, to go from somebody that literally had been exposed to death so many times and had tried to take their life many times and it wasn't working, we were like, wow. Um, In this evaluation, we can say you definitely have risen up to surviving. But after that settled for a minute, we ask her, what's one step above surviving? And some of you that haven't been coming regularly, if you've been here just a few times, can you think of what would you call it if you were a step above surviving? It's something you'll find in the Bible. It's a word that they use. Overcome. Uh, (laughs) No, it was just so compelling you had to say it. Anyway, I'd ask her that thing. I said, what can you think of that's above surviving? And you could hear crickets. Because she couldn't think, what is it that you would call it if you go a notch above surviving? The step above surviving is something that a lot of times, if you never can think what it is, if you've never even thought, what's better than being a survivor, If you never thought it, then it's going to be really hard to be it. You know, if that's not even a concept with you of surviving and that there's something that God even has better for you than just being a survivor, because, I mean, the world applauds you. You're a survivor of, and we have all these different things. But if you've never thought those terms, then you won't ever get there because you won't have anything in you pulling you to go above surviving. So we did a surviving versus overcoming contrast that we did what's the difference. And I think what's unique about it is if you think of a book in the Bible that describes the worst time, the most difficult time, the craziest time to ever be living in, you would say it's the book of Revelation. Yeah, it's the end of the book. And we laugh. It gives you a blessing if you read it. Well, you know why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because it's quite a book. But it starts out in the beginning of the book. It introduces who, who the Revelation is about. But then it gives you two beginning chapters. And you would think that Revelation's message would be to you, just try to make it through. Just survive it. Just get through Revelation. It's seven years. Buckle down. You're going to make it. But No. The first two chapters say something seven different times, and it says it to each church. So it's the message to the church. Every single time, it says to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. You would think it would be, thank God for him who survives. Is anyone going to be left alive, and will I have my head on me? I mean, you're looking at it in those terms, but that was not the message of how that started. It started out being a message of overcoming. So Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, both of those chapters are talking about overcoming. And so when we were discussing that with the girl, we said, you have gotten to a good level compared to what the world was giving you, and that's what... Honestly, what the enemy was giving you because literally she had made a lot of covenants with death. She had made a lot of contracts with death. She finally had come to the point of thinking, I just can't kill myself no matter how many times I try. And some of you know what that's like because you've had that on your life where you know you tried to end your life and not do the calling of God on your life, and God brought you through, and you know you're a miracle. She knows she's a miracle, but she was still at that place of tears of saying, I've got to have more. My life is just in a million pieces. Have you realized that you can feel God during this time trying to get us up to better levels? Well, you know, with a lot of people, they're in a period of time where they are just barely making it. They're just barely surviving. So if normal people are believers and they're not surviving, or they are surviving, I thought about it. You can even be at the point in the survival thing of even being thriving, and you're not going to be into what we're talking about tonight. You can be even to the point of really kind of things are working pretty well for you, and it's still not what we're talking about. And I'm going to give you a for instance. This one kind of comes close to home because of what we do. But the Psalm 91 message, you know, God's given that message of Psalm 91, and, you know, it's been used through all of history, but especially during military victories and, and times that you'll see military, different uh, uh, soldiers, but even whole armies will allow Psalm 91 to be prayed over their soldiers. But I want you to think about it for a minute. Many people are using Psalm 91 for defense. They're playing a very defensive game. They're thinking in terms of Psalm 91 is, wow, I can really pray these protection promises of God, get up in the morning, do something preventative, and keep bad things from happening to me. Like literally, God's angels, literally, he he delivers me from the fear of this pestilence. I mean, there are tremendous testimonies that God gives us of what he does to protect us from evil. It's basically what Jesus said. Pray that you're delivered away from all this temptations, testings, trials that you're taking completely out of the pathway. That's a very defensive posture. And it's the least you need to be doing. It's definitely something that shocks me that Christians don't armor up. It's shocking to me that people aren't praying that over their congregations, aren't praying it over their people. But let me tell you a different idea on Psalm 91. Let's take the posture of all these protection promises that God laid out for us this time that we're living in. And let me say, if you take Psalm 91 and you literally make the charge into the enemy's camp, that you really do something with it where you take the fight to the gates, where you take turf from darkness, where you set captives free, One thing, how Jesus described it, that you're giving out food in the proper times. That the good slave was found doing what he wanted him to do when he came back because he was distributing food while the other one was consuming food and consuming drinking, the other one was giving at the proper time. So you're seeing an offense move And on top of it, you're not only seeing the fact that you're giving food in the proper time, but what about if you take what God's given you and you multiply it? That he doesn't seem happy if you give him back exactly what he gave you. He wants you to take your life and he wants you to take whatever you gave him and multiply it. You're supposed to take the talents, the minas, and double them, multiply them that God has something for you to do. Would you call that offense? That if you're able to do those, if you're able to take this life in the battle and you're able to take turf, you're playing that game of offense. And that's another whole way of looking at life. When you're looking in terms of the difference between just defensively, I'm putting my armor on to protect me, to offensively, I'm taking territory. I'm taking things back from the enemy. So it'll take a certain amount of time in your life to move from surviving to overcoming. It takes that. It takes a certain amount of time to get from that death consciousness, what everybody's thinking about, about suicide or emotionally, that they're just at a place that's not healthy and you move it to the fact that you're actually healthy in your mind and you're thriving, but then you take it to the next level. So I want to ask you a question here. Have you ever noticed that someone that thinks of themselves as, I'm kind of a bad person, if you knew what all I've done? And like sometimes I've heard the stories and I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretty bad. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't expect it that way. That was a little bit worse. And by the time you volunteered years in prison ministry, and I've been in college ministry all these years, you think you've heard everything. But it's getting pretty creative out there in the darkness realm. And people are literally consumed with what they were doing that was bad. I mean, Ann was telling me the other night Robert's got to tell you this story on this guy who lives in Brownwood about his father. And he was bad. And I'm like, he stole money from me. I just didn't realize he was that bad. I mean, it's interesting that people have things that they really are ashamed of. Can that sort of person ever get to the point that they quit feeling terrible about themselves and do something that counts, do something that counts in the kingdom? Can they do anything? Can they ever get past that mindset of, I really have done some things, and if you knew some of the secret things I've done, some of the hidden things, I can't ever get to that point because you're constantly working on your insides, trying to get to the point that you're doing something inside where you feel kind of like you're a Christian. (laughs) You want to feel like you're, you know, at the the state school, I drew one of those crime scene pictures of a body and put it up on the wall. And I said, that's a picture of you, of being that Christian that you've always dreamed you could be. Because they're sitting there telling themselves, I could never be like you. I could never do what you're doing. They can't see themselves make the transition from the mess they're stuck in to being that kind of sold-out radical Christian that they would long to be but can never see the pathway to get there. And that's the path that I'm taking you on because when you get into the offensive game, it's really where all the excitement is. It's really where all the fun is. In fact, Paul says it makes it a lot easier. If you walk in the spirit, you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. So honestly, you can be like me. You're not really that good of a person. You're, you're, you're kind of an old uh, character inside of yourself. But you stay so busy playing offense, it kind of keeps you out of the, the bad stuff. And so that's what people are doing. They're so working on this this ethical thing about themselves trying to do a self-improvement that they never get to doing what God wanted us doing, and that's doing the kingdom business, doing something that counts. There's some examples from Scripture about this. And I'm going to give you two people that we're going to contrast that in many ways these two people are pretty evenly matched. The first person was just beat up all the time by the devil. Shame. Condemnation. There's one thing to have shame privately, but there's another thing when it goes public. And there was someone that's quite famous, I won't call her name, but she says, I was one of the first people on the internet that went globally shameful. Like everything that I had done privately got exposed internationally. She said, I can't go anywhere. She said, I had to go through a lot of therapy to be able to deal with the fact that I would always live in the shame of something she had done in her 20s. Yeah, shame. Public shame. It does something. Think about if your worst sin was just where every person knew it. She said, used to you could move and get away from it. She said, with the internet, no, you can't now. She said, people know me by my name and my face. So there's condemnation that the devil does. And at best, it gets you where you're just playing defense. You're just trying to get that guilt off of you. You're just trying to get out underneath the shame. You know, the enemy's got a pretty good case against you. And he's beating you up in your, uh, in your head. And so there's this area in life where you can get trapped. And you can be sitting in the pew, but every day your thoughts, condemnation... You're thinking about yourself. There's a deep rejection of yourself. If that's happening, you need to get help. You need to let the Lord do what he specializes in doing and get that off of you. That's not how you're supposed to be living. So we're going to take this lady in John 8.1. You know the story, but I want you to think of it in terms of this. In John 8.1, this woman was caught in adultery. That's all they say. But you can picture the situation. She was caught in the very act of adultery. Yeah, that's pretty public. And it looks like the guys grabbed her and started dragging her, like just dragging her to Jesus. I would say there was a legal case against her. (laughs) You know, there's a case against her with the enemy and what he wants to do. There's a legal case against her with the Pharisees and the religious people. There's a legal case now with her, with her family, with her husband. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so that's where this lady starts out. And that she was completely in a place where in the courtroom of heaven, (laughs) she was in a mess. And so she was afraid of her accusers because she knew the punishment. And there was no way of talking her way out of this thing. You know there were charges being leveled against her. Have you ever had something like that where you were being accused of something? You know her head was going crazy with shame. You can imagine what was going on inside of her. yeah, as she is walking that her head's just going crazy and uh if you looked, it was all men accusing her. Uh, I don't see that they dragged both yes. <laughs> so anyway, she looked and the men were. They they had caught her, and she did, she did it. She did it. She did it. She couldn't deny it. There was no denying it. She had been caught. And what's being said against you, and it compounds with stuff. It sh- you know, that kind of shame goes with it. It adds to the shame of your youthful times, of maybe some immature times, the case where we've all done a piece of stupid in our life, and we wish we could take that back. I mean, it compounds inside of us that we think, oh, we've done this and add it to this. Like, I'm making a pattern. There's just no hope for me. And in a person like this, there's no motivation for greatness. At this moment, she is just wondering if this isn't the end of her life. She was caught off guard. And she was exactly what they wanted. She was trapped. And so, number one, she's afraid of the accusers. But number two if they do follow through with the punishment for this, where it's, uh, they're gonna, it's lethal, <laughs> they're going to kill her, that she wondered immediately she'll be in the hands of God. So it just moves from, I'm moving out of this earth into the next realm, and then I face the Lord. And so she's afraid of what God might say or do. But an unusual thing happens to her. This doesn't happen many times in life where it happens in front of your eyes. But she has the accusers of men and she's about to be killed and stoned. And so she's going to be before God, but she gets drugged to God. (laughs) So God happened to be taking a visit on earth. His son was walking on earth. So she's drugged between heaven and hell. She's drugged between earth and judgment. She's drugged to be in front of God and uh, she's been afraid of this now it's a matter of she's got the courtroom of men and she's got God himself standing there and she's also been a good woman she's gone to synagogue enough that she knows what Moses law says and she knows the standard of God and she knows she's felt it and she knows God's standard is against what had happened I mean this isn't false guilt this is true guilt it's shame. And now she's brought to a point that not many people get the opportunity opportunity to face Jesus in the flesh. But there she is. She's been drugged straight to Jesus. And they actually were messing with Jesus because they were telling him, look, your father says this, your quote father, and what are you going to do about this? And so they didn't mind... I mean, this is really kind of hard to swallow, but they did not mind if she died for them to get their way. She was just a necessary death that was going to happen. Her life wasn't worth anything, and they literally thought if Jesus was going to prove that God was his father, he was going to have to let her be stoned. They didn't care. They had no care in their human soul for the fact that she was going to have to die for them to be able to get their way. And they'd had an idea. They had invented a theological trap to put Jesus in. And they were seeking someone to fall into this trap. And they'd set it up. They'd set up these traps. Because now they had a legal right to destroy her. They had a legal right. But there's something interesting, and this is kind of the perplexing part of what was going on inside of Jesus. If you think about it for a moment, the purpose of Jesus is to free us from all judgment. So here he had the theological commandment that he had to have her stoned. But yet, if he resists, if Jesus is resisting and condemning, he is actually working against his own sacrifice. He's actually working against what he had come to do, that he was that sacrificial lamb, that he had had it laid upon him, that this was the whole purpose. And now he's caught right before the time has come for him to lay his life down. And inside of himself, he knows the reason he exists is to take judgment off that woman. And it's a problem. There are no changes in the Mosaic law for this woman. There's no Mercy, There's no hidden ways to get out of it. There's nothing. So Jesus is caught between what he's called to do and what he's facing right now with this lady. And he's looking into her eyes, and he's got to answer those charges against her. And he can't just erase her sin any more than he can erase ours and just pretend it didn't happen. I mean, if you think about it, when he takes our sin, it's not that he pretends it didn't happen or puts it in denial. He doesn't take that. He takes those charges against her, but he answers them. He answers them. He answers them in a way that we had never seen anyone, anyone like him. You know, he didn't let their words against her stand. And as men and as authorities, sometimes you've got to stand between the words and the charges and what stands against a person. That's our role between God and broken humanity, that many times we step in at this moment and at this point, and we don't let charges stick. We don't let those words stand. We don't deny them. We don't make them okay. We don't do what the world does and act like there's no such thing as sin. It's a very unique dilemma that Jesus is in at this point. But if you're the woman be a drug up, or if you're the sinner that's been exposed, you're hoping he can hear God in a hurry. <laughs> and now that he's gone on to heaven, many pastors and many people that have stayed with the Lord, you're hoping they did their prayer time this morning, and they have a good answer for this. Because these are scenes that human nature and human flesh drag up to us. And so Jesus takes this challenge And he waits on the Holy Spirit to give him an answer. In fact, you see him, and he drops to his knees, and he starts writing in the dirt. And how many sermons have been preached on that finger writing something in the dirt? We've heard so many ideas of what that could be. You know, I think our favorite is he was writing their sins in the dirt. There's many ideas of what Jesus could have been writing at that moment. But when he heard it, when he heard what they said, she was caught. You've got to do something. She was caught in the very act. He answered it. And the amazing way that he answered this, Jesus was not trapped by man. He was not allowed to be trapped. And he came to her rescue. You know, people who have spiritual authority, you also have the wisdom of God upon you. The Holy Spirit is there to help you in these kind of situations. You know, Jesus is able to silence them. The word that he gave there, okay, let's let her be stoned. Who's ever without the sin, you be the first. And it's unusual how John writes it, that the oldest dropped the rocks first. You know, he silenced them, he shifted them. And they all left. One by one, all her accusers just left the scene. It's a moment that you have with the Lord, and it was just him and her. At this moment, when it's just you and Jesus, you're free to ask what you've been wanting to to ask him. But she does no question. It's your moment to petition him. She could have said something. He gave her life back to her. You know... What's odd about this verse is what she didn't say. You don't see that the woman repented. You don't see her gushing and and saying, you know, just overcome by emotion and saying, I'm so sorry. You don't? She didn't ask. She didn't ask to be forgiven. You know, it's funny, Jesus didn't even ask if she wanted help. He just stepped up to the plate. She's been drugged to him and dropped before him. She didn't make an appeal to the Lord at all. She wasted her chance to get to ask Jesus something right there on the spot. I've heard of people who have had visitations from the Lord, and they said sometimes they're so overcome that all the questions they've had on earth, they can't think of one of them. She had nothing to say. You know why. She's in trauma. Trauma. I mean, more than likely, she's going to live with this the rest of her life. She's going to remember how far she was drugged, how if he hadn't have been there, what would have happened, the different eyes of the different men, the fact that she felt like they were all hypocrites, the anger, but yet the guilt. Have you ever known you were wrong, but you still were angry because you were being accused of it? So this lady's in that place of... She has the gift of getting her life back. But there's a good chance she's going to live in trauma the rest of her life. She's never going to completely recover from John 8.1. Now, we all love the fact that this happened. We love this story. But she might have felt a little different. So Jesus had already done it. He had already given her life back. He had cleared it up. He had cleared up the charge against her right in front of her but she couldn't think quick enough to do it. In fact, her emotions couldn't catch up at the moment she was. So you have a silent woman. You have a woman in front of Jesus, and nothing really is said. You know, she had more of a chance with him when they had all left, and it was just him and her. She didn't know what he really was going to do when they all took off. But he said, um, neither do I condemn you. Go your way in peace. He was the only one that could have thrown the rock. He was the only one that had no sin. And he was going to let himself be made sin. But she didn't really know, but he didn't cast the rock. She's under the law. She had a mindset. You die a painful death. Leviticus 20.10. But when God shows up, Anytime he makes an appearance in your life, I would tell you, be ready for it. He had come to her rescue. This woman played defense. It was amazing it had gone that well. It was amazing that she had her defense game on because in that culture she was going to die. The wages of sin, we earn them. And she had earned them. This lady represents so many of us who that's how our life is. We're just thankful Jesus rescued us. We're just thankful that we are not being held guilty for everything we did. We sing amazing grace and we sing saved a wretch like me and we sing wretch with all of our heart. <laughs> we know we're a wretch. We're thankful that he could love us that much. We're so happy For what Jesus did for our sin. And we tell it the rest of our life to ourselves, there's never been a man like that man. And we're very grateful for that kind of a Savior. We didn't get to pick him. It's amazing that God's as good as He is, that He could love us that much with all that we've done. But there was another lady, and this lady came with a perfume bottle. And it's Luke 7, 36 through 50. But let's contrast it for a second. Well, first of all, she crashed a party. A bunch of guys she wasn't invited to. And she penetrated religion. And she continues to penetrate religion. And all religious thoughts, she broke down the gates of society. The woman busted in and she's the lady with the little perfume bottle i'll never forget my dad's sermon still one of my top 3 if that little perfume bottle could talk what the stories that perfume bottle could have told yeah this lady was shady but this lady did something she played offense There were two messages given that day. The message to the other lady was, go and sin no more. different message was given to this one. Sin wasn't even mentioned. It wasn't even mentioned of, how would you earn this? This is filthy lucre. How dare you? Don't touch me. Everybody's judging me, thinking I must not be a prophet if I'm not discerning what kind of woman you are. Different message. It didn't touch on the sin. He said some remarkable words. He prophesied that this very night in history, I'd be here talking about that woman. He said, this will be a memorial to you, and from now on, people will speak it in honor of you. So here, 2,000 years later, in a different culture, in a different language, I'm talking about the woman, just like he prophesied I'd be doing, that it was an honor to her. And he said to her, to him that's been forgiven much, Loves much. This lady did something different with her past. She played offense. She did something completely different. You know, both ladies were fallen women. Both had that reputation. When they came in the church, all the women, they all talked, it's her. The men go, it's her. Reminds me of one of my college girls that was a stripper in Abilene. She also worked at Chick-fil-A. And men, I don't know why they did, but they'd come in there with their families, their children, their wives, and they'd go, don't I know you from somewhere? It's not the right question to ask. She was in the phase of getting sanctified. It's that kind of a person people know you and they can't quite think where they know you from, on one side of the fence. On the other side of the fence, people, they judge you harshly. Both ladies were fallen. Both ladies had guilt. But you know what's odd about the contrast? It it ends here at one point because the other lady wasn't a professional. This one was a career woman. The lady that had the bottle of perfume must have been good at what she did to get that expensive a perfume. Yeah. She came on her own terms to Jesus, not the other one. And she took a low position. It's, a, it's an unusual way that she did it. it. She took a very low position, but she was humble but confident. It's odd how you can be both that it's not a beat down worthless, I'm sorry, no good person. But she threw herself at her feet in a way that most people would never do in this culture. The accusers, it was the men. She walked into a bunch of them. But I'm not letting the women off because they judge just as harshly. And she had the same chance as the other lady And when she walks in, everyone whispers. And she was taking a huge risk, too. Because she, too, was going to stand in front of God. You know, men fear rejection. But can you imagine what this woman felt like? I wonder if he'll reject me. Like, am I setting myself up to be humiliated? Like, he does know everything about my life, my past. And yet she took a huge risk to do something that you could say, well, why not a different time? Why not in private? That was just too much emotion. That was too much public display of all the things that could have been said. Uh, this isn't the time for that. All, all the things that could have been judged on her, she set this thing up. It's an odd twist, though. What happened is, the odd twist is this time Jesus was accused. Last time the lady was accused, but this time Jesus is being accused. She set him up to be judged. And she went to the next level. She did something for Jesus. And he and her understood something. He said, I don't have much time left. What you've anointed me for is burial. And he turns and he says some things to the men that are judging him because it says he knows their thoughts. And he said things to them like, I came in your house and he said, you gave me no water for my feet. And he goes, you know what she's given me? She's made up for what you lacked. The water she's given me are her tears. Like, there's religion, and it has this piousness to it, and it's this stiffness. But he took that personal, embarrassing, emotional display, and he contrasted the water. He said, no water was given for my feet. He said, you could have washed my feet when I came in, and, but you gave me no towel. My feet came in dirty. You know, it's, it's interesting saying, you would think Jesus would say it this way, uh, well, you invited me for dinner. I'm thankful you're a good host. Thank you for the meal. Instead he goes, you didn't wash my feet. You know, my dad was a lot like this. If I went along and had my heart right, things went well for us. But if I hit him on something, I would hear this kind of thing. Like, I would start seeing what I had forgotten. If I struck someone I shouldn't strike, he would remind me of myself. And that's exactly what Jesus did to Simon when he said, you didn't give me good hospitality here. And Simon had thought, I'm having you for dinner. This woman's interrupted. Look who she is. And he contrasts that you didn't give me a towel, but her hair served as her towel. And she dried my feet with her hair. Who's heard of that? I mean, that is such a personal thing to be done. And then he takes it to a step further. He's not through with him. He's not through with the tears. He's not through with the hair. But he takes it and he says, and you gave me no kiss for my face. But she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You talk about where did the shame get put? In the last story, the shame was put on the man that had sin, and he pulled it off the woman. This, he put the shame on the man who had had him over, and they were going to have men talk. They were going to have a good night of a good religious discussion. But Jesus took what this lady did. She had gotten very personal. She gave him what meant the most to her, and it got so personal with her, she used her hair. Maybe she forgot a towel. Maybe she would planned this all along. She gave him something she had. You never think about Jesus having needs. But he said, this was for my burial. You've anointed me for burial. You know, the other lady barely spoke, and this one did not speak at all. The other one had said, Where are your accusers? And she had answered, but that's it. This one said nothing. The other lady was rescued. This lady tended to Jesus. She gave him something an act of love, sacrifice. She got him into a fight. <laughs> How she approached the Lord, the miracle she needed from him. Defense. One played defense and one played offense. And you're going to take your sins in your life and you're either going to always feel sorry for yourself and always be very grateful, hopefully, for what the Lord did. Or you're going to take your testimony and you're going to go on the offense. And you're going to take every last blow that the devil's done to you and you're going to turn it and use it on the enemy. You know, How does this apply to us? Well, the first thing I would say is that um, as we're taking an evaluation of our life, where we are, are we playing offense? That this story, what it does for us is it takes away all of our excuses. The excuse that we use so often, I'm not good enough. Well, let's just face it, we're not. Let's just get it over with, we're not. Whether we're Simon the Rochester or the lady that was bringing him the perfume bottle, we're not good enough. You know, there was a lady at our church. She was an older lady. She was straight, pretty, very straight-laced Sunday school teacher type. And I loved teasing her because she was so proper. And there's something about proper people. You just kind of want to get in there and tease them quite a bit. So I had teased her all the time because she was so straight-laced. But summertime, we, we didn't, Mom didn't teach. We had summer testimonies. And you sure didn't want to miss summer testimonies because that's where you found out everything about people. But I, I thought, well, I would skip hers because she's going to be boring. But because I like the woman, I'll go and I'll give her something to rib. She's probably, you know, she hadn't done anything bad. Lo and behold, I fell over. She told us that she had had a few years. She had been a prostitute. I was sitting by Ann's good friend, and Ann's good friend's elbowed me, and she said, "If Granny was a prostitute, there's hope for me." (laughs) (laughs) Both of these women in Scripture had two different problems. Both of these women in Scripture had the same problem, but they had played it two different ways. You know, we're either going to be a victim or victorious. It's a good contrast. How do you play defense and how do you play offense? First, I'd recommend that you bar my coach because she thinks in keeping you in an offensive game. But one person completely played the offensive game. And I'm thankful for the defensive game of our sin being washed away. There is nothing that can replace for the substitution of what Christ did for our sins and the genius of what he did for the lady. I'm going to just tell you, don't live there. There's another level. The Bible tells you clearly that if you've freely been given in the area you've been given to, now freely give. The first lady that had played defense had no plan, but the second lady, she came in with a plan. The thing about playing offense is you have a plan. We don't have to be dragged in for our best game. (laughs) We humble ourselves and we don't let life humble us because it's trying to break us. You got to realize you've got something to give you've got to realize you've got something that the Lord wants, that you've got good timing, and that you've got something that you're able to bless God. And I don't care what a rotten life or rotten sinner or wretch that you've come out of, and I don't care your age, I don't care any of your excuses, I'm telling you, it is time to play an offensive game. Revelation says the time is now. And if we're not teaching an overcoming the doctrine, it's causing our people to not have authority in their life. You've got to get people to play their defense, but you've got to get them to play offense. And to be an overcomer, you must play an offensive game. I don't know if you would have been content to always be on a sports team playing defense. I don't know if you were like me, but I have to have a little offensive time. And in the kingdom of heaven, what are you doing to move the ball? Think of times in life and in terms of defense. Where are you on this? What is your game? You know, I think number one, it's, it's not enough strength for yourself is when you're in the death culture. But enough strength for only yourself is when you're in the defense When something is coming against you, if you think in terms of every man for himself, then you don't see yourself as something to give. You know, Jesus is uh, saying this to us. What are you going to do? Worse than this thing of every man for himself is the person who says, I need what you have, and I'm going to take it from you. But if you're playing defense in the kingdom, you're only surviving and you're only playing for yourself, and I'm going to include in your close family members. And the reason why you might protect your close family members, I mean, I'll be truthful. it hurts you if something happens to them. It's not as altruistic as we'd like to think. It's just like, I don't want to go through that pain. But we've got to think more than just that kind of thing, that we're just going to play defense. We've got to have authority for other people in our life. Some of you are failing in your weaknesses, but some of you are failing in your strengths. Some people pride themselves that they do they do the job of a man, that they do the provider role, and it's strength. But the job of a man is to provide a covering, to have spiritual authority. When I was listening to these stories, people are telling me, I'm like, you're letting that go on under, under the roof, under your roof, under your household? You're, letting, you're allowing that to happen? You know, Abraham was commended by God and chosen by God. It says this in Genesis because God knew he would command his children to follow him. So you can be priding yourself that uh, I'm doing a good job as an authority, but I'd have to ask you, are you being a covering? Is your tree giving shade to those so that other people can nest in your branches? Are you providing that for others? Sometimes even where you say, well, I might not be doing that, but I'm doing my job as a a provider. I work hard. I pay the bills. But um, I was working with someone. I said, you're even failing at that. Because everything you've done has been taken away from you. The enemy has stolen you blind. You don't have an anointing on your life, even in your strengths. And sometimes we've got to be hard with ourselves and say, we're not even playing good defense for even ourselves. We're failing. Matthew 10, verse 8, it gives you the offense list. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cured the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, now freely give. Matthew 28, offense. Go, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I've commanded you to do. But be sure of this. Lo, I'll be with you to the utter parts of the earth. Lo, I'll be with you forever to the deepest, darkest places you go. Mark 16, 17, offense. These signs will follow those who believe. They will cast out demons. You know why that one's first on the list? It's the easiest. They'll speak in tongues. They'll pick up deadly snakes. This is not just Kentucky picking up snakes to prove yourself. This is you're a missionary, and you're out there in the wilds, And if something gets a hold of you that's poisonous, you've got the power of God. And if you drink any deadly poison, it won't hurt you. And if you place your hands on the sick people, their virus won't jump on you. But healing from the power of Jesus will jump on them. Acts 10, 38, the offense list. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. Is this what the anointing of the Holy Spirit looks like on you? That you go out in the mornings anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good. That's what your day looks like. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He went about doing good, healing all who was oppressed by God. Oh, That's how we read it. Healing everyone who was oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There are times in your life that people are about to be knocked out. And you've got the power. To stand in the gap and stop it, you've got to impose your offensive game on the enemy. Preventative prayer, preventative prayer is defense. It's like us shouting on a mission trip when you're so tired you can't move, and we got to still get back a few miles back to camp. And they're screaming, "No soldier left behind! Get up! Get up!" That's defense. Doing both offense and defense. While you're on defense, the good thing about defense, if you can catch the ball and make an interception, you're playing offense. Find a way in your defensive game to get your hands on something that moves the ball further down the the goal. Offense, take turf, take turf, take turf. Don't go back, don't retreat, take turf. This is make trouble for what troubles you. When you're winning, don't back up. You can hear your coach screaming in your ears, turf, take it, take turf. You remember that in that movie, Facing the Giants. Genesis 22:17. 17, because I've sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing, because you've not withheld your son, Abraham, I'm going to do something for you. We don't hear this. Number one, I will greatly bless you. Number two, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And number three, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Offense is when you take the fight to the gate of your enemies. It's where you tell the enemy whether they can go out or stay in. You are made to possess the gate of your enemies. Turn the chaos back on them. This is what God has called you to do. In fact, you're not even going to have exciting life until you play offense. We get phone calls sometimes to trip up evil. We had one lady, she said, I'm too old to handle it, but I've got a friend who's older. She's in her 80s. Every evening about sundown, when the sun goes down, her daughter starts beating her mother who's in her 80s. And in fairness to the daughter, there was something wrong with her. But they said, she's going to kill her. Would you help her? That's when it takes authority. That's when it takes it. You know, phone calls of, uh, my mother has a, a gun and she has a whiskey bottle. My dad says, Angie, would you go handle it? And you're finding all the whiskey and all, how many guns? <laughs> and then you see her the next day at the liquor store. So you just do this, you bump her bumper. You know what the lady's doing now? She's out serving God and advancing the kingdom of heaven. You can trip up evil. You can take the game to the enemy's gates. Parks, one of ours, I asked her, can I tell your story tonight? Where did I get her? Her cousin back there told me her mom died. Go to her funeral go to her mother's funeral. You know, I heard the story of her mom, little two-year-old kid, so happy to see her parents. And she goes running to the front door. And they said they watched one of the family members take her and kick her as hard as they could, like a football against the wall. The grandma, a drug addict, the grandfather is a registered sex offender. It's what her mom grew up in, a happy little child and, and totally being torn apart, parts losing her mom. Her mom gave up custody, but her mom did it out of the goodness of her heart because she was like, I'm going to give you a better life, and I'm too broken. And the day she dies, she dies of a blood clot from a long-term overdose on antidepressants and the long-term use of the medications caused the blood clots. And I walk into the funeral for the first time and I take a look at her and I'm like, it's not gonna go down this way. She took one look at me and she said, who's the crazy woman? <laughs> she doesn't remember much about that funeral. She says, it's surreal? She was in shock. She remembered remember that some crazy woman came. And on top of the crazy woman, uh, they said, who is she? Is she family? I don't know. She said, all I could feel is mad and partly confused that you were there. I told her, I want you in my Bible study. I want you getting the word in you. Her aunt had warned her, don't have anything to do with that Bible study. It'll lead you to, say the word, zealotry? <laughs> zealotry. Zealotry. My gosh, who wants to go to zealotry? That's terrible. (laughs) She knew she better stay away. I asked her what would have gone down if if I hadn't made time that day. What would have happened to you? She said I'd be medicated somewhere in the hospital, not functioning. I didn't have an ability. I couldn't find truth. She said I was fighting already the thoughts of a multi-personality disorder, fragmented You can feel that when it's knocking, saying, the enemy's saying, here, you want to take this? If you'll just let your personality go and alter personality, you'll get through this. Let's just get into that realm and not tell ourselves how bad it really is. She said, I'd gone into witchcraft. I had a choice. One aunt was following God, and one aunt was going into witchcraft. She said, I'd gone with that one, but I chose my aunt. That was following God when I got in Bible study. She said, instead, my life is full of prayer times, intercessory, authority of the believer, feeling stuff coming my way and knowing to resist it, getting whole in my emotions, finding my fight, being able to stand up to people who try to treat me like they're not going to let me have anything that's not right inside of me, pushing through it, finding truth, asking God, a personal walk. She said the only thing that went wrong was she was always terrified to leave this coffee house because she said when she left it, she felt chased. She said, I felt like that girl that came to see you. When you walk outside, that's where the tornado started. She says, but I've come to a place now. I'm not scared of the storm. She's graduated from college, and she's a full-time teacher, helping kids just like her. You're going to trip up evil? This is my last story. Phone call. One of our guys, he'd come out of a a bad background himself, and he goes, uh, a woman's here to take my two kids from me. Will you come help us? We said, uh, where is she? Uh, She's at the radio station. Oh, (laughs) on my property. Okay." (laughs) Oh, she's not by herself. She's got her druggy boyfriend in the car. Do you think they have a gun? You don't know. Sitting in the dark. Well, we have authority. She can't take those kids being drugged up. So we had to go in there and stop it. Not knowing if there was a gun, not knowing if he was violent. But, yes, there was a little drama. She decided to take the kids, and I decided she wasn't. She decided she was going to take the kids, and Steph decided no. Well, she wasn't going to get past us carrying her two kids off and being drugged. So I told her, you have drugs in you? No, of course they don't. I'm going to go get a drug test. Okay, you, you do it. You'll see I'm clean. And she's, you know, <laughs> you can see her. And, uh, well, a little drama did incur. While I was gone... Uh, I'm trying to pick a drug test. <laughs> which one did I pick? I've never done this before? So I'm looking at Walgreens trying to pick my drug test, and I text my police friend to say, "Hey, uh, would you please tell me which drug test?" Angie, you can't contact me in the middle of a crime where you're a that's going down <laughs> that you're a suspect. I go, "What? I'm getting a drug test. I thought she had the wrong Angie." No, you're, we just got a call that you've kidnapped a woman. (laughs) I was like, oh, did they see the duct tape? No. Um, (laughs) So we get back there. (laughs) I can't even imagine. My good friend turned on me. She was yelling at me. I had to see her the next day in Walmart and say, I didn't lay a hand on the lady yet. I was going to give her the drug test. (laughs) Guess what's happened? If we had not stepped in, those two girls that she was seizing, she would have taken that night. She was putting them in the car. She was loaded down with drugs. Those girls have progressed. They've been raised in a home that's drug-free by a parent who prays with them and over them, with them and over them. Both of the girls are in church Both of the girls are turning out to be beautiful young women and better get a shotgun. (laughs) Guess what? Mom's trying to clean up to be able to see them. She gets to come see the girls on occasion when she's sober and it's been peaceful. What happens if you don't have your offense game on? What happens if you don't have your authority? You've got to play the defense and the offense. Do you have the power to cause people or to help people to fail? Do you? Do people have the power to help people or cause them to fail? Yes. Then you also have the power to help people overcome. And that's what we've been made to do. Amen.